0: welcome to the people everywhere podcast the podcast where we explore how remote companies create thriving cultures i'm nico skivasky and i'm andy kitson today we've got an interview with dr nikki blacksmith nikki
1: is an industrial and organizational psychologist she teaches at american university and is the ceo of Blackhawk behavior science where they bring a research-backed approach to helping startups and venture capitalists make better people decisions build more effective cultures and close the gender gap in venture
0: capital funding In this interview, we talk with Nikki about her research into what makes an adaptive culture, the pivotal role founders and leaders play in that, and how to make data-informed people decisions around hiring and performance management.
1: We had a lot of fun talking with Nikki and learning from her. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did.
0: Nikki, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'd love to start by just asking you what your story is and get a sense of your, your path to where you are.
2: Sure. So I am an industrial organizational psychologist. What that means is really that I study human behavior in the workplace. And IO psychology, which is what we call it for short, ranges from anything from pre-hiring all the way to turnover and exit interviews and things, anything related to human capital strategy. My particular area of specialty is in the pre-employments and assessments. So early on, actually, like in high school, <laughs> I'd taken a personality test and just, just like, this is the coolest thing in the world. And, uh, somehow ended up actually doing that as a career <laughs> along the way. And it was interesting because when I was in undergrad, IO psychology was really just emerging. I, was, I went to the university of Iowa and they didn't even have an IO psychology program. I was doing social psychology and it was a lot of experiments and it was interesting, but I was just Kept asking myself, okay, like now what? (laughs) What do I do with this information? And so I had a business professor come from the business school, the psychology department, talk about IO psychology, and I was like, that sounds so cool! I want to do that. And so I really just kind of took a leap of faith and moved to North Carolina because I got into their program there, (laughs) fell in love with it. So it was a good choice, luckily. And then you know I I was a consultant for a little while, and then went back and got my PhD because the science is really kind of where my heart is and I did my postdoc at the Army Research Institute. So I've been doing research for, for quite a long time. Um, within the last five years, I started a company, though, taking a lot of the IO psychology concepts and principles and that have traditionally been leveraged in like Fortune 500 companies, companies with large uh, budgets for human, develop, human capital development. And there was just really not a lot for startups. And in my opinion, they're probably the ones that need it the most. So that's what my company is doing right now is we're really trying to take a lot of those heavy consultant interventions and turn them into more like product and intuitive, like use yourself like resources versus hire, you know, an expensive consultant to come in and do a survey. I like to call it little IO in your pocket.
0: <laughs> I'd love to kind of get a sense of what your big questions are that motivate your research. Like, like what are you focused on? What's the question you're trying to answer in, in terms of IO psychology?
2: Yeah, so I think I started my career in hiring and measuring personality and measuring characteristics that predict success. And it's exactly the same thing I do now. The difference is a while back, I had run across a statistic that said, and this is probably not much different than what it is today, that 3% of women get funding. And that just like blew my mind away because in the hiring world, that would be illegal if you only hired three percent of women. So, I started digging in and, and asking, "You, how is this even possible?" Wait, that, so
0: the 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 stat is like three percent of funding goes to women.
2: Yeah, only three percent. So basically, ninety seven percent goes to male founders. <laughs>
0: That's amazing.
2: And probably much less to people of color. Those those statistics are harder to find, but we know that it's pretty much 97% white males. And that was, I'm Hispanic. So personally, I was like, and a female. (laughs) So I was like, this is it. Like, I've got to fix this problem. So I started studying the venture capital decision-making process, you know, and realized, you know, after lots of reading that it's really not any different than a hiring questions. You're asking the same fundamental question. Are these people or this individual, are they going to perform in the future in a way that I will get a return on my investment, whether it's the salary or, you know, a investment. The only difference is that it's typically at the team level. So you're hiring a team instead of an individual, which is new. Organizations don't really hire whole teams at a time. So it is a different um, lens. And also it's just higher stakes, a lot higher stakes because um, you're putting a lot of money. But the, the process and the question are the exact same. So I started thinking, well, we've been working with organizations as a field you know, for decades and now it's hard to find an organization who doesn't use some kind of assessment to predict performance. So why are we just going about making venture capital decisions without assessment? And traditionally, like if you ask any venture capital like 99% of them will say, the person or the team is the most important factor in their decision. But when you start digging and asking how they determine whether or not that person is the right person, it's usually primarily gut instinct, which we as psychologists know that um, data is a lot more predictive than somebody's instinct. Of course, there's always gonna be the person's instinct or what, and that's fine. Everybody has you know preferences and stuff, but they should use data to inform those decisions, to make those decisions wiser. <laughs>
1: could you talk a little bit about like what maybe the 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 process that's not really data driven that a lot of organizations or or investors use today versus one that is like in more rigorous informed by data Ooh. the 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 one that you'd want to see people use yeah it.
2: so if you any startup i think they have a difficult time hiring cuz they don't have that option usually to use the data so they'll just you know look in their network find someone that they know try to do an interview as well as they know how, even though they weren't trained in no running interviews, we actually have entire training programs for people to do to accurately rate interviews. And so instead of just, you know, talking to a person and using your own perceptions of whether or not you think they will do well, what we do is we start with the end goal. So what does performance look like? First of all, like you can't, I always tell people, you can't, get somewhere if you don't know where you're going. So, we have to first define what is it that we want? Like what kind of performance are we looking for and then work backwards from there. So, we define, you know, let's let's take a manager, for example. That's a typically studied role and, and we know certain things, um, certain behaviors and certain performance dimensions lead to better work. And so, we identify the traits or characteristics that are linked to those things. And by doing that, you're actually assessing what matters most to the job versus just asking questions about their background and resume and experience. So it's really about defining what it is you want and then determining an accurate like way to measure some of those things. And that can be, that's where the, the psychology comes in in play because it's really difficult to measure someone's personality. You can't physically touch it. So you have to really, you know, there's a whole field called psychometrics, which is the, the study of measurement of psychology, psychological traits. And using those methods lead to we know from several studies hundreds of studies actually we've been doing this research for about a century it goes all the way back almost to Charles Darwin's cousin and start identifying individual oh, no so yeah so we know methods and ways to do it but I think primarily it starts with the the defining what are you looking for and a lot of times that can be really difficult because you don't usually when somebody's hiring in a role they're not The person that's an expert in the role. So, like, for example, if I was to hire like a chief marketing officer, I'd want to hire someone who's top of my field. But how do I, I don't even know how to differentiate who's good and who's not, because that is such a field that's far away from the work that I do. So that's where the case where, you know, studying the job and learning what you want and identifying those up front would lead to much better hiring than if I were just to go out there and say, ah looks good. Like you've done some cool stuff. (laughs) Sure. Come on up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the first step is really being clear about here is the role that we're hiring for what success looks like and what, what we're looking for in a candidate that we think is going to be predictive of of success.
2: And it varies by role, of course. So not everybody is going to be good at every single role. And I think that's the, the thing to remember is that some people are just built for different types of roles than others, you know,
1: Sure. And, and then once you have that definition, it sounds like there's a combination of perhaps some psychometric tests and then also interviews that are, are, are they more structured or you're just kind of guided by this, this profile that you put together? How is, how, how, how are those different?
2: Yeah. So psychometrics is just the general umbrella term for any kind of measurement of psychology. So I would actually consider an interview, a psychometric assessment, um, if it's designed Well, And so to your question about the structure, that's what makes an interview good is that there is structure to it. So every single candidate gets the exact same set of questions, which makes it easier to compare. If you have two candidates and they get two completely different questions in the interview, how how can you even compare who's better and who's not for that particular role? So having the structure, there's also things we know that make those decisions more accurate. So if there's multiple raters, instead of just one person, you can average it. And that kind of gets rid of some of the subjective bias that comes with each individual. If you can look across it and there are self-report tests like personalities. So those tend to be like the rating scales. You've probably seen like, you know, a statement that says like, you know, I'm very outgoing and then you report, you know, strongly agree to strongly disagree. There are what we call situational judgment tests. So those tend to be more knowledge-based they look at like specific types of knowledge. So like the one, for, only one that's coming to my mind is this one that was used for an FBI agent, but there's like certain rules and processes and procedures they need to be aware of. And so it gives them a scenario and it says very, very like similar to what you would actually experience in the workplace and then gives them a set of choices. Like what would you do in this scenario or this situation? And so that's what we would call situational judgment test. There are others like cognitive ability tests which are very similar to any kind of like academic test that you might have taken like GRE or ACT or SAT, where there is actually a right or wrong answer. That's the biggest difference between the personality and the cognitive ability is there are no right or wrong answers for personality. But there is a right answer to one plus one. (laughs) I hope.
1: (laughs) How, well, actually maybe before how, but should culture factor into... Uh, this selection process, and if so, how how do you think about that?
2: Absolutely, I think hiring you don't just want one aspect of the person; you want to kind of know the person overall. So there are a few different things that I like to separate. So one is their fit to the role: can they actually do the job? Do they have the skill set and experience? Then there's the the fit to the organization: do they are they a good fit? And I can tell you lots of <laughs> stories myself of when I've been in poor fits, but it's if you think about it, okay, I'll give myself as an example. So I'm an IO psychologist and regardless of where I am working, I'm usually doing some sort of data analysis, writing, theorizing, analyzing. The work is the same. I worked at Gallup for the longest time and I loved their culture. It was so much fun. I still have friends from there. The best time, like it was perfect. It was very relationship oriented. Everyone was focused and motivated. Everyone wanted to do like he constantly be better, so we we're always looking to improve. And then I went to work for the U.S. Army Research Institute for my postdoc, and that was literally the opposite experience. Like, I felt so trapped, it was the worst fit for me. It took a toll on my mental and my physical health. And the difference was that I was in a culture that didn't value, like, I new ideas <laughs> and I tend to be you know as most entrepreneurs are the person who likes to break things and then recreate them and and challenge ideas and the status quo and that does not exactly fly when you're in a military situation so I got in a lot of trouble for uh, not respecting the hierarchy and just opening my mouth when I shouldn't according to their culture and so it was very clear very early on that like this, I could not stay there. Like, this was just a really, really bad fit for me. Like, I need to be in a place that like values, like innovation. And it was just crazy stuff that would make me like, we were doing paper surveys (laughs) and of digital surveys. I'm like, and I literally would go and like calculate all this, you know, how much we are labor, the cost and the printing and be like, look, we can save like millions of dollars if we just move to digital. And we can also save time, like do things faster. And they're just like looking at me, like, get out of my office, like I don't have time for this.
0: (laughs) So without, without calling one culture Better or worse right because because there's certain effective things about you know that culture how like if, if you are the hiring manager or a leader within that organization how can you assess like what is your culture and then how do you actually hire people that fit into it or is that even the right way of thinking about it
2: it is it's exactly the right way of thinking about it and for startup leaders and founders I always suggest that that's like the first thing they do is to Define what kind of culture they want. And I think it's really common for a startup founders and leaders to say, that's not important right now. We're focusing on our product, like we're in survival mode. Or we don't need to think about our culture until we have a lot of people on board and we have an HR department. And that's actually, I mean, we've seen it in the news a lot with like Uber's sexual harassment culture that was heavily like, you know, publicized and, and there's a lot, a lot of examples in the public where kind of your culture, if you don't define it upfront, kind of unwieldy grows in its own way. And I like to think of the culture as boundary conditions for decision-making. So if you, I'll use my company, for example. So we really, really value learning. And so if we have a hiring situation let's say and somebody like is not the kind of person who wants to learn more and just wants to kind of the job where they coast and they've learned and mastered the skill set that is the complete wrong person for our company and it will we you know we really do embody kind of that entrepreneurship um, sphere is like if you don't know it like just go figure it out and learn it yourself and so it can easily just by a single person. Like if we're a startup, we have let's say a five-person team. Bringing one person that doesn't fit that culture completely changes the dynamics of the team, and then you're kind of dealt with kind of trying to manage and, and wrangle things back into place. And that can happen if you don't define the culture up front, right? Because you don't even know what you're looking for. But a lot of times, you know, and then the Edgar Schein, who's one of the most most cited researchers on organizational culture, will say that founders personality is probably the biggest influence on what the culture actually happens so it's almost like you can't really tear the person apart from the culture so it will come out like things will happen the um, employees will model the same behaviors the leaders are exhibiting and so things will happen if you don't do that intentionally it's really really easy to go astray and then it becomes more difficult later on so my advice is always start like at the very beginning because it'll inform so many decisions you make like our values we value a lot of like the diversity you know I spoke about the the funding gap and that's huge for us and so if we you know, there's a deal that comes across our way and, you know, as a startup fund, you get a lot of opportunities and it's easy to say yes to them all, which can be quite dangerous. But for us, if we know like, okay, this doesn't really fit in our values or it doesn't really mesh up with our brand, like, even though it's like a lot of money, this would take us down a whole other path that we don't want to go down. So it creates like a way for employees and others to be empowered to make decisions that they feel are best for that particular company.
1: Can we dig a bit more into it? So, so you you said sure. you think it's of- Culture is boundary boundary conditions for decision-making. What do you mean by boundary uh, boundary conditions a bit there?
2: Sure. So if you think about, I'm thinking about a while ago, I think it was Starbucks where they had their employees, they gave them full power to give free coffee or coupons or, you know, discounts if a customer was having a poor experience. Prior to that, there was probably rules where a manager needed to sign off on something like that. It's difficult to say employees go out and make those decisions yourself without giving them some sort of understanding of when it's okay to do it and when it's not okay to do it. And so by saying, you know, we really value the customer experience. If they're upset, that's the worst thing for us that could possibly happen. So in that case, like, you know, that it's best for the company to offer a free coffee or, you know, whatever they do to, to make up for, you know, a long wait or, or whatever it is. So they have an understanding of what that company cares about and what's important to them. And that informs their decisions. So they're not just out there, you know, making decisions however they want. It is within a context of this is why we're doing it. And this is what's important.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it's like the, the situational judgment um, mm-hmm. that, that we were talking about earlier, how, so you're talking about defining the culture early on that kind of comes from the founders. How, how often do companies get that right? Like, do, do, is their own self-description, like actually matching up with their culture typically, or are there processes to like get that better so that, you know, the, the culture that you think you have is a culture that you actually have, or does it just happen? Like, you know, if the founders sit down and like really think about it, you know, they, they, they're likely to get it.
2: I would love to see that more often, but I very rarely see it. The one example I can think of is, and this is obviously because this company has extensive resources and they've been around for a long time, but Disney. So they do a really great job of, they have an external brand, right? They're, they want happiness and magic and, and they're for kids. And then internally, they create a culture that enables their employees to actually provide that experience. So they call you know, their employees at the parks, cast members, and they create a way to merge their external brand with their internal organizational culture. And I think that's probably the best way to do it is always, it should always be aligned with the business strategy. But I have very rarely seen that. I've seen things where like larger organizations tend to have the situation that you just described where the leaders think the culture is one thing, but the employees are like, "Eh, actually it's something totally different. And in that case, you have to understand where and why the differences exist. And that comes back to the the measurement piece. So measuring and understanding, okay, where do the cultural differences exist? Because there's a lot of things that can happen. They can create countercultures, culture that's actually works against what they're trying to do, or they could have subcultures. It's very, you know, it's not uniform. It's not like all employees have one thing. It could be, you know, like at Gallup, I think each office had kind of their own culture, whether they were in Singapore, DC, or Omaha, Nebraska. And so those subcultures were okay because they were part of the broader culture, but they weren't countercultures where they were doing things that were actually damaging the brand. And so you have to kind of understand the layout of where these beliefs and ideas are happening in your organization in order to actually make any kind of changes. And that can be really difficult. With startups and earlier organizations, that's why I love like really pushing the like, let's start first with like your organizational culture before you go anywhere, because then that creates and avoids those situations in the future. You, you have this chance to actually be very intentional about it. Think about, so when we first started our company, my co-founder and I just sat down for like eight hours one day and just like what do we care about? What kind of workplace do we want to be? How do we want to be seen? And then we came up with a list of values and everything we do is baked in those values. So our hiring or, and our onboarding and our branding and like everything comes back to that. And it's tightly aligned with one another. So it feels like it's a seamless part of the organization. And when you build it in so like much, you like bake it in, it's really hard to take it down. And that's what's problematic about organizations that don't do it intentionally because it does become baked in in ways that they didn't plan or, you know, anticipate. And it's much harder to kind of break it apart than it is to start from scratch and, and build it up.
0: One of the things I'd, I'd love to get into, you know, we've been talking kind of about, you know, defining culture based on how you want to move the organization forward. But I know you did some research on like what makes an effective culture and specifically the, your work around adaptive cultures. Can you, can you give us a, I'd love to just hear that story about what that research was and what you found in it. I think that'd be an awesome path to go down here.
2: So I think of organizational culture the same way I think of personality. There's no right or wrong culture, right? It's just whatever makes sense, but there are some things that are fundamental and adaptive culture is one of those things it's because it's a survival mechanism it's really I don't I dare you to try to find one organization that's exactly the same as the day it started and still survives today I mean it's just not realistic like the world changes and you have to change with it if you're an organization and want to survive so building in that adaptive culture is is almost a survival mechanism essentially and there's a lot of work but it's a lot of theoretical work like yes, we know in theory that change is important and that we need to think about it, but there wasn't a whole lot of actual research that tested those theories and hypotheses. So we did what we called a historiometric study. So we went back in time to st- study organizations and we identified about a hundred organizations pre-1940 that had started up. And we wanted to have some consistency in the way we analyzed them. So we Picked companies that had Forbes profiles written about them that we could go back and we could look and code and, and analyze, and so we had Forbes articles from like pre nineteen forties, and then we had coding from then till today. So like, was the organization did it get acquired? Was did it merge with somebody? Is it bankrupt? Like basically any kind of big milestone that the company had over the course of the last like you know. Some of them were a hundred years old and we were going to see if organizational culture, adaptive culture, if they had that, if that predicted how likely they were to succeed in the future using kind of this past, because it's really hard to say hundred years in the future, let's see what it is. So you kind of have to go backwards to understand the future, <laughs> but it's a little counterintuitive, but we, you know, when I first started the study, I was thinking like, this is insane. Like we're picking up data from like... 1800s and trying to correlate it with data that exists today, like there's no way this would work. You know, there's just so many factors that like could have gone in between. And to my surprise, we actually got really interesting results and we were able to predict those organizations that survived over time. And it was those that had adaptive culture. There were two ways we thought of adaptive culture. So there's the mental component, like the beliefs, the ideas, the values, and then there's the action component, like are you actually doing these things? And you can think of it similar to how we think of you know, people and behavior. If you want to change somebody's behavior, you have to change your ideas first. They're not going to behave in a way that goes against what they believe in. And so it's kind of the same thing with an organization. Like, If your organization doesn't value and believe and change, it's going to be really hard to get people to actually do that. So what we found is that simply just having action orientation or values was not enough. You had to have both. You had to have the belief in the value system built in as well as the action, which makes sense. I mean, it's, it's kind of like organizational cognitive dissonance, you know, the discomfort that you feel when you're behaving or acting in a way that goes against your beliefs. And when you have a lot of people and you're trying to change their behavior, the number one way to do that is to start with the mind, the mindset of that organization.
1: So the adaptive culture is one that values change and that has the ability to execute and actually make change happen.
2: Yeah. So we identified eight dimensions of adaptive culture. So the first one is external focus. So the organization has a mindset that they don't exist in a vacuum and in isolation, which some organizations do think that, but they recognize that the environment has a heavy influence on how they operate and then there's also this idea that they're constantly trying to anticipate or foresee what's going to happen in the future. They pay attention to trends, you know, in the whether it's like top 10 trends in the field or trends in like how the economy's working. They pay attention to where things are going and try to anticipate the changes before they happen. There's also the idea that you're just open to change to begin with. I think this is a tough one for a lot of organizations because you have to walk a fine line, right? You don't want to create an organization that's just like open-ended and there's no standardization and you know that would just be chaos so you do have to create some standard operating procedures but you don't want them so rigorous that you can't change or adapt them when needed and so having this idea that it's okay to do things a little bit differently than we always have is critical and then having the confidence too like we can change like that's a big one. If you think about organizations and innovation, you know, they might look to a competitor and like, wow, we don't have those resources. Like there's no way we can do that. They just don't have the same level of confidence. So there's all these kind of like mindset of understanding, being open, confident, and foreseeing like what's coming and paying attention.
1: And all those go into like the, the valuing change.
2: Correct. It's like all, it. those are all, you can think of them like mental activities, the way you think and what you're doing and researching and reading. And then the action bucket is made up of, more of those executionary processes. So you have an organization that develops capabilities. So if you think about the startups that anticipate scaling and create processes and systems built in so that like in the future, when they're ready to grow, like it's not going to be chaos. They've actually built it in and, and ways to scale. So it's this foresight of planning, I guess. There's also collaborative action planning. So you can't just make a organizational change in one department and then not involve the rest of the departments. It has to happen like cohesively and everyone kind of has to understand the change if you're going to make that level of change. And so understanding how like teams work together, like multi-team systems is critical. And getting people to work together across those teams is also really important. So, you know, I'm thinking as a psychologist, we often work with technology teams because we have the expertise of designing and building like assessments, but we don't have any expertise in like coding and making it actually implementable, like on a digital space. So we're constantly like working collaboratively with like the IT department or, you know, people from other disciplines. And that's not easy at all. You have to have the ability to like speak different languages and like understand each other. Like, I just remember this one time we were building an assessment in I/O psychology, we often call questions items. And so I kept saying the word items, 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 and nobody said anything, but the IT department was like, totally had a different mental model or understanding of what the word item meant. <laughs> you know? So like, we were like having a conversation, but like each one of us had a completely different, different interpretation of what it is so it does require a little bit of like understanding how to get disciplines to work together um and then of course there's executing change you actually make that change happen it's really really easy for you know company oh we should do this we should do that let's do this this is cool we'll do that in the future and then never actually make any change because it's that like analysis paralysis like Change actually has to happen. And then the last part is sustaining change. And I think this is probably the hardest thing. So people are resistant to change in general, like inherently, that's how we were built as human beings is to resist change. And so when you have a giant change, like organizational wide, and you're trying to sustain it, you have to build in other systems to reinforce that change. So if, for example, if you're going an organization that wants to move from individual level performance, like the recognition to like a team performance model you have to have the rewards and salary and compensation all tied to the teamwork not the individual otherwise they'll just keep on working towards individual level so it requires understanding like what systems and processes within the organization are going to hold that change mm. and it sounds like these are you know linear and in order but i think they all kind of like happen together at the same time and it, it's hard to tease apart but with research, we always try to actually delineate and, and make um, distinctions between them, but in practice, it's not that easy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I I love this. You're, I think your findings on adaptive culture are are really important here, and I want to just kind of go back to the to the experimental design, so we can understand the the importance of these findings. So 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 first off, these characteristics that you described of of what makes a culture adaptive, is this what you found by by sort of trying to, to look at those Forbes, um, for the, the, the Forbes articles. And did you pull out like what made these companies successful or did you try to define that this company, you know, in the, in the 1930s had an adaptive culture and then, you know, ran the regression to figure out like, oh, and they're actually much more successful than the ones who didn't like, what was that process like? And how did you actually figure out that a company did or did not have adaptive culture based on these Forbes write-ups?
2: So there was actually two parts to our study. It lasted years, (laughs) painful years. But first we had to define what an adaptive culture is. So that kind of goes back to my point. Like if we're going to look for something or try to measure it, we actually have to know what it is first. And so we scoured all the books and articles we could ever find on what an adaptive culture is, ranging from academic scientific articles to, you know, articles or books like Good to great like how do people describe adaptive organizations and then what were the commonalities across all of those so we identified these eight things and they came from basically a synthesis of everything that's been done before we ha- actually had one other aspect in there which was risk-taking and that ended up not staying in the model because it was one of those things like you can do all these things and still be risk averse right? Risk-taking isn't a requirement of change. And so it was one of those things that it just, people talk about it a lot when they talk about change and adaptive, but it's not necessarily like a critical component. It can be a bonus whatnot. So we identified these traits and then we had to actually figure out like, okay, now that we know what we're looking for, like how do we actually measure that? And so we. created what we call behavioral anchored rating scales so we had a rating, like for example like external focus you might have like low external focus to high external focus and instead of having like one to five we actually had to write like what those organizational behaviors or um, processes were so that way everybody was that rated at a five rated same thing. So there was like extensive training that a team of undergraduates had to go through. God bless them. <laughs> it's such a hard job. They really had to read through like hundreds of Forbes articles, like in detail, coding, analyzing. And then we would like look back at the collection of coding to make sure that, like, you know, if one person said it was and wasn't, like, what's going on. And so we looked at like the inter-rater reliability and, and how consistent the raters were. And that's what brought us to our ability to say this organization was adaptive and wasn't, is that these undergrad research assistants were trained at least 12 hours (laughs) to do this. And then they read through every single Forbes article. We had multiple people read each article. So it wasn't just like they got divvied up. Like we had to make sure that the raters were consistent. So we had everybody read read the same hundred articles and they coded it for each of those things. And so Every organization got scores on those eight dimensions. And then we use those scores to correlate with, we use survival analysis, which is actually a really cool statistical technique that's typically used in the medical field to actually predict survival you know, <laughs> of a person. So like cancer rates and things like that. So we actually took that statistical method and applied it to the life of an organization using those, those eight traits.
0: That's amazing. And, 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 and just to touch on again, And what you found was that the companies that had higher ratings of adaptiveness based on these, these, the the ways that you measure that had, yeah, they they survived more than than other companies.
2: Yeah. So they, I mean, we had companies like Forbes and Heinz and not Forbes, sorry, Ford and Hines. Oh yeah. I was
0: like Forbes writing about themselves.
2: There was a lot of automobile uh, companies, obviously, because that was kind of what was going on back then. There was one I remember the most was Davy tree surgery. And I just remember thinking like, what the heck is a tree surgery? (laughs) Like, Who does tree surgery and what does that mean? And what is it? And they are still in existence today and they have thrived and they were one of the very few that like, just really made it like all the way a lot of them were like acquired or you know merged with somebody else and if they were acquired we considered that a death of an organization because Mm -hmm. they were subsumed by another organization and they had to take on the traits and culture and processes of the other organization if they acquired another company and they were the ones that acquired it they were still alive so we had to make these really clear distinctions about what does survival even mean for an organization and so if you want the same company you start today to exist 100 years from now, this is what adaptive culture is. It's a different thing when, you know, you get subsumed into something else that, you know, is, is just a different definition of, I mean, it's not unsuccessful, but it's not survival, which is what we defined as.
1: So reading the study there, it really got me thinking about the capacity of companies for like cultural change. Cause on the one hand, like I I, I have this pre-existing belief that the cultures can change, that leaders can shape culture, kind of all of that. Now, on the other hand, we're taking a look at these snapshots in this time window that then predicts survivability on like a decades-long time horizon. And it, it feels like I don't know, it just had me thinking, like, is culture destiny like at, at that point, if you know, it's really looking that far out. Or is it really that like maybe adaptive cultures are the ones that can change their culture and so they you know culture can change but only if you're already adaptive or is it really just kind of like more of sort of like you were talking about earlier kind of like at the founding stage or some kind of point where like past you get when you get past that maybe it's it's too late or um yeah i think i'd really just love to hear you talk about cultural change like can it happen what are the conditions where it can happen if so how i would
2: say cultural change can absolutely happen But the longer an organization is around, so it's older. Mm -hmm. Think about like human beings and change as well. Like people get in their ways and they're harder to change as they age. Same with an organization and also the size of it as well. So it's much harder to change like a thousand person organization than it is to change a 30 person organization. And the scale of change is just immensely different. And that's why there are literally like entire like fields and, and degrees in organizational change is <laughs> not an easy thing. So I would put culture change in that same bucket. It's Like this is going to take a few years at the least, if you're a large organization and you want to change, you can do it, but it's required a lot of dedication, a lot of time, a lot of resources, and it's not by any means going to be an easy ride. People just don't like change in general. So you're going to be working against <laughs> resistance almost by definition earlier it's a different cause you have, it's much easier. Let's say like, there's one person on your team that's really kind of toxic or, you know, takes your culture in a way that shouldn't go. Like you can get rid of that one person. They can leave the organization by themselves. Like they just realize they're not a good fit or they end up getting fired. And then you bring somebody in and kind of rebuild and re the team and bring it together. And so that's a little bit easier. That's why I, I like to always like, really emphasize that, like, if you start this from the beginning, you won't have to deal with the, like, incredibly difficult change process of organizational cultures. And I've seen it a lot where large organizations, it's not that they have, like, a culture that they don't, like, they don't understand it, they don't know how to define it to begin with, and they don't know how to explain that like what their desired culture is and what their current culture is. And I think that's a critical part of change is knowing where do you ex- currently exist and where do you want to go? So knowing where are the discrepancies between the desired and the actual culture. And that's really important for a large organization if they're gonna change is, is really getting that benchline metric of, of who they currently are and where, and where they have to go.
1: Yeah, so it's a lot easier when you're smaller. I think prior to recording, you are talking about just like the different roles of say founders, executives, managers. C- could you maybe talk about kind of like what the different roles that like founders or executives or managers or, or just like individual contributors can play in, in changing culture?
2: Yeah, so a founder I would argue is probably the most important part of the culture because they're the ones that are going, they have the vision, right? So they also have whether or not they are aware of it, a vision of what they want the culture to be like. And so they can either intentionally design it and build that in and build processes and reinforcements to support that, or they can go in, just be themselves and the culture kind of emerges as it is. And that's more dangerous in the sense that it's more difficult to control and manage. Founders and leaders in organizations have such a critical role in organizational culture to the point like they don't even realize how important so people are social learners. We learn by watching other people. So if they're behaving in a way that goes against the values, it's very easy for the rest of the company to think, oh, it's okay to do that. Like if they're doing it, like that's fine. You know, I'll give you an example. One of the things that we we study personality. So of course we really value the just individuality and and the differences in people and want everybody on our team to feel like they can be themselves. And that's really the mark of inclusion is you have a sense of belonging, but also you value what's unique about each person. And the other day I was in a meeting with a couple of my um, employees and she said something like she liked something. And I, I made a icky face like no not that (laughs) I'm gonna do that and my you know another leader on my team totally called me out he's like we value everybody's opinions and differences and like she has her own you know tastes and opinions and afterwards I was just like I I sent him a note and I was like thank you so much for calling me out on that because if you didn't it would have eroded our organizational culture like we would have lost that value not just with that one case but I'm like a very expressive person, so (laughs) I have to watch my uh, facial expressions in meetings more often than I do now. But that was one of the things is that you don't even recognize every little behavior that you do reinforces or damages the culture.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I love that example so much. And, and I, I think about, you know, how do we build a culture of belonging a lot um, because people are, you know, they can be their best selves and work, work within teams and across teams if they feel a strong sense of belonging within their organization. But I'd love to get your take on, it's, it's almost a paradox between this concept of belonging and that the authentic person is welcome here. And all, all that they want to bring is welcome. And at the same time, we want to build a culture that is adaptive and that can change. It has a growth mindset and can learn. So it, on one hand, we're saying you're perfect the way you are. And on the other hand, we're saying, but oh, we can get better <laughs> and we can change. How do, how do you think about that, that paradox between, between those two sort of what, what I think are, are truths that need to be present in a culture that is effective?
2: Yeah. So I think about that every day. Cause I do, there is a, a little bit of a conflict, and I think if we differentiate between who the person is as like an individual versus what the organization does in terms of the behaviors and processes and products, and it's okay for my you know employees to like. I don't know, like heavy metal or something, you know. But that's not going to be like the theme music that we use for, our, you know, videos and things like that, because it just wouldn't mesh well with it. So there's a difference between like, yeah, it's okay if you like that, but like, and please by all means. But also, here's what how things need to get done in this organization. So it's it's similar to how you would operate a team. Like you think about, okay, how does the team collaborate together? Let's figure out that process, but still knowing that every single person on that team has a unique skill set that we could leverage or use. So understanding the uniquenesses of people actually makes organizations stronger because you know who to go to when you need something of certain um, extent. So, for example, like my co-founder, I me just give this example because it's my favorite, but she, if you give her blank page like she'll sit there for hours and just like not know what to do with it and then it'll stress her out and if you give me a blank page I'm like oh like five minutes and there's like <laughs> something on the paper but then I get like okay have you I've worked on this for a while like it stalls and then she's the one that kind of comes in and is like all right like now that I have something to work with I can mold it refine it like do it and so we learn that about each other and it completely changed the way we collaborate with each other and like what we do and how we do it just by knowing that. And so we're still working on the same piece and getting the same thing done, but we each come at it with different perspective or lenses or skill sets. Um, But it's amazing how much (laughs) quicker we get things done after we realized our, our each superpowers, you know, and it's part, what are we doing together? And then what does each person bring to that, you know, process or product that's unique and how do we pull that in does that make sense
0: yeah yeah for sure and and i think this you know i i feel like we can't touch on what makes an effective culture without going down the path of why DEI diversity equity and inclusion is is so important within these within these cultures and i'd love to kind of ask you about you know if we define a culture we have a set of values we try to hire people who fit within that it's almost like we're trying to find people that can assimilate into what already exists. And how does that compare to us trying to actually understand what makes people different and use that to, to help our culture evolve and grow versus try, versus an assimilationist mindset of like trying to get people to fit within what we already define as our culture?
2: Yeah. I think fit is one of those things like to get someone to fit, and you're asking them to change who they are that that's when the problem happens when there's little fit. Like there is no way I could have gone into the army and been like, okay, listen to everybody. I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. Like I'm not gonna come up with new ideas. Like that's just not who I am. There was no possible way I could have assimilated to that culture. (laughs) And so we both knew it. They knew it, I knew it, we parted ways. And it wasn't like they had a bad culture, right? It just was not a good fit for me. I was doing the exact same work I was doing when I was, you know, at GW doing my PhD or at Gallup, but in a different setting. So part of it, you know, I like to think about it like a family, like you have your family and there's like, a, every family has their own culture and rituals and behaviors and, but everyone is so unique, you know, like you and your siblings are just, you know, the opposite. But at the same time, there is something that overlaps and that you share. And that's what it is. It's really It's not about assimilating as much as it is about sharing. So having the same shared values, like I wouldn't want to hire somebody into my organization if they didn't value diversity, because that's such a central piece to everything that we do. So it's really about what are the shared beliefs or values or things that we're doing? And then how does everyone bring their unique perspective to accomplish those shared goals or shared beliefs? So it's, it's hard to, Differentiate, and I think it's a fine line. And I hear a lot of organizations and and people say, don't hire for culture fit because then you're just going to create this homogenous organization and everyone's going to look the same. That's not the case at all. (laughs) Like, it's two different things. First, make sure you have everybody fit for the role. Like, everybody is going to have a different role, and every role requires a different and unique skill set. But if you have people that are working towards like different goals, nothing is ever going to get done. There was this company I worked with there. They had three founders. They really wanted to work on doing it, building an intentional culture. So they brought us in very, very early in. And so we did all these stakeholder interviews to try to kind of figure out like what were those shared values and goals across the founders. And <laughs> we actually found instead like, that they were each describing the purpose and goals of the organization. Like, completely different, like almost different industries. And so we're like, Oh, okay. We've got to step back before we talk about culture. Like we have to figure out what's shared amongst ourselves and what we're trying to do together. And then we can start to think about how to build that from there. But it really does begin with that shared goal. I mean, if you, if you think about it, it can be as simple as like, what is the mission or purpose of this company? Mm -hmm. If Don't value that or have the, you know, ambition to try to help achieve that, then probably not the best fit. And that goes for the bottom line too, right? Like you don't want someone in an organization that doesn't buy into like what you're trying to do because it just wouldn't work.
0: Oh, this is amazing. So (laughs) to, to, to kind of summarize, I, I, we bounced around a bit, but we talked about like yeah, shared shared goal mission for the organization. How culture needs to come out of that to figure out how culture can actually support making progress towards that. How do we actually hire people that are aligned with that and make sure that we're we're doing it in a way that can actually make our culture more adaptive and grow. So so much to chew on as, as a leader within the organization. So I I super appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with us. But one thing that we are going to, to do with, with all of our guests on the show is hit them with a set of rapid fire questions. So we, we have them here. I'm going to kick it over to Andy to, to give them to you. But yeah, we'd love to get your take on um, a couple of these questions I think are going to be really interesting to see how, how different people respond to them. <laughs>
1: cool, righty. Could you share a story that illustrates what culture means to you personally?
2: Yeah, I think to me, culture is just another word for home. It's about a place where I feel comfortable being me. And to go back to the story about the Army versus Gallup, like, I did not feel like I could be me in the Army setting. At Gallup, that was a different story. Like, I didn't even question it. It was just like, I was just there, you know, like, I didn't even think about myself and the organization and the fit between me because it just was so natural. And so for me, culture really is, if you don't feel at home and, and like you fit in, that's probably not the best culture for somebody. So like, I always like to tell people, it's like the organization needs to instill the culture, but also the person has a responsibility of knowing what, like being self-aware enough to know where they fit and self-select out of those positions when they're not right. Because even if they do just, you need a job and need to get in, they're going to be miserable anyway, like in the long run. And it's going to affect them in a lot of ways. So to me, culture is home.
1: Cool. Culture is another word for home. Love it. So in in terms of company culture building culture what do leaders either too often overemphasize or um, underemphasize like kind of what what are the things that you think are overrated or underrated around fostering cult, company culture
2: so i think one of the things that is underrated but incredibly impactful is the idea of a psychologically safe culture and so what that means is that somebody feels like safe enough and are trusting enough to say what they think or believe, even if it doesn't align with like the person that's, you know, leading the team or the manager or the peers around them. It's really easy to get a lot of people together. One person says something and then everybody agrees because they're afraid to challenge it. And that's when group think happens and, and lots of problems emerge. So having a psychologically safe organization, not only is it increase the well-being for the individual because it just feels better to be there, but it also is beneficial for performance. Um, you will get higher levels of performance from people if they feel like they can speak up and be, you know, safe in terms of being themselves.
1: What book do you want everyone on your team to have read?
2: This is a terrible question because I'm like a bibliophile, so I have like a 50 in my head that I want to recommend.
1: <laughs> That's a great question, so yeah, choose one.
2: Okay, so one of the books that I've been recommending to everybody lately is called How Emotions Are Made. It's by Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she does integrates a lot of psychology and neuroscience and really challenges the way we've looked at emotions historically, um, especially in organizations. You know, In the past, it was very much like keep your emotions at home but that's literally impossible because we are human beings and we all have emotions regardless of the setting we're in. And what she does in that book is really, you know, I'll give a little teaser. It's kind of cool. It's, it's, we used to think that like emotions happen to us. Like we were, you know, sad or happy, but what she describes is that our emotions are actually predictions. So our brain is like, on overdrive spinning past all the past experiences we've ever had trying to find a situation that's most similar to that situation and that's why our emotions emerge so if there's trauma for example like that's why people get triggered is because their body is literally saying like you've been in this situation in the past get out right now <laughs> and so it's just a different way to look at things and it changed how i understood myself and how I understood others. And I just think if you're going to work with anybody, like read this book, because it's so fundamental to human beings and relationships, and it's going to change the way you think about things because it's so revolutionary.
1: All right. So how emotions are made. I am ordering it right after we sign off.
0: (laughs) I I literally just ordered it.
1: (laughs) You do it. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So what are maybe one or two work changes that you've made since the pandemic started that you plan to carry forward?
2: You know, I've always been known to be like very unempathetic <laughs> and like very like, most people tell me I'm intimidating and scary. And that blows my mind. Cause I don't, I'm not self-aware enough to know how that comes about, <laughs> but I think I have definitely made A very cognizant choice to put people over profit or compassion over productivity, especially right now with the pandemic. It's like, you know, I just wrote a blog about, you know, I'm sure you feel it or you've heard your friends say like, everyone feels so tired and exhausted right now. And part of that is that human beings only have a finite amount of cognitive resources and energy. And when we are loaded with things like a pandemic and, you know, World War Three threats and you know it's just like climate change, like everything piled and piled and piled. These aren't just like little stressors; these are like colossal. The planet is dying. Stressors, and so it takes away energy and emotion from us. And people, I just they cannot perform in the same way that they used to pre-pandemic. Like I think about like the pre-pandemic, and I got up and went to the gym, and you know did. 10 or 12 hours a day of work. And then I still had energy at the end of the day. And now it's like, oh man, eight hours. Wow. That's like, I'm so tired. (laughs) It just drains you in a different way. So recognizing that, you know, we are all humans and this is a really stressful time and putting that, you know, it's not perhaps that this person can't perform well. It might be the fact that like something goes going on in their life. A lot of people have lost family members or, you know, I have students who are from Ukraine. Like, just recognizing that everyone has something going on right now, whether or not you see it, and putting that first instead of jumping to the conclusion like, oh, they're just being lazy or they're not performing. Mm-hmm.
0: Love that! I got goosebumps. Okay, so we got through rapid fire. Amazing. Um, <laughs> I just want to thank you again so much for for coming on, and having this conversation with us. I've learned a ton. I took a ton of notes while we did this, and yeah, I I am excited to continue the conversation with you because there's so much more I want to ask. So you'll definitely hear from us. But thank you so much for for doing this.
2: I feel like I have a lot to say, so come <laughs> in time.
0: Well, there you have it. That's the show. Thank you so much to Nikki for sharing your knowledge here. And if you, the listener, are interested in learning more about Nikki's work, check out blackhawk.io. That's B-L-A-C-K-H-A-W-K-E.io. And there you'll find how Nikki and her firm approach this work with startups and VCs, as well as her academic publications, if you really want to get into the science behind all of it.
1: And thanks for listening. If you want to subscribe and follow along, you can do so wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked the show, please leave us a review or share the podcast with a friend. That helps us grow the show. If you have feedback or would like to suggest a guest, email us at hi at peopleeverywhere.fm. You can also sign up to hear about new shows at our website, peopleeverywhere.fm.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Bye.